We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Thank you so much, Hannah. As I was coming here, I had a thought. I suddenly had a memory of a conversation that Michael and I had years back. And I think we could probably say that the conversation was verging on bitter... Not between us. It's all right. <laughs> I thought I'd air this all in public. Are we on no. Jeremy Carl show? Sorry. <laughs> it was because it was a time when the idea of engaging with the past, and particularly with the distant past, was considered something that wasn't just redundant, but that was verging on the self-indulgent. And I think it was, it was, very, it was when we first met... And I don't know if you remember, ladies and gentlemen, there was a sort of moment with the millennial year approaching, the year 2000, when there was this rather extraordinary notion that the past was just a dry, irrelevant husk and all the answers lay in the future. And I remember us really having to kind of battle the value of what we did. So I just thought before we started properly to set the record straight, could you tell us, Michael, why you think it's worth everybody spending an hour and a half in our company while we talk about the machinations of the long dead? In a few words. Well, I mean, on the one hand, we've all just been through an example of, of ancient history in the referendum as an example of direct democracy a la that of ancient Greece and ancient Athens. Now, we may not like it, we may not want it again for quite some time, uh, but we've been experiencing what the ancient past might well have been like. But from the point of view of of this book and, and, and global history, thinking in the ancient world about the global context rather than any one particular society, I, I think the value is that we we fundamentally counteract what Eric Wolf called the lazy history of civilization. That the Greeks begot the Romans, the Romans begot Christian Europe, Christian Europe begot the Renaissance, then the Enlightenment, that led to political democracy and then the Industrial Revolution, and that led to America. Thank God, end of story, end of history. Right? Um, you know, taking a global perspective on our ancient past fundamentally counteracts and contradicts that. And the second key thing that, that ancient history can bring to the table is as we sit in an era, a globalised 21st century world, 
we can think about quite how far back interactions between communities really go. I mean, I was struck the other day, they've just found in excavations in Spain a piece of, uh, of uh, elephant tusk uh, that comes from an Asian elephant, but it was at a workshop in Spain dating back to the Neolithic period. That's four and a half thousand years ago. Um, we have been communicating and interacting and trading for much, much longer than, than even normally when we talk about the ancient past. Uh, and so I think fundamentally we have to remember that and bring that to the table. Um, and finally, I think in our 21st century globalised world, we're going to have to change the way we prepare not just ourselves but our children to have competency as global citizens. And in that, I think the ancient world has a, a great role to play. So bring it on, I'd say. Yeah. And, and also, it's interesting for us uh, historians that at last uh, scientists have kind of woken up to what we do and they are finally on our side. So they now tell us that we are creatures of memory, that physiologically and neurologically we cannot have a new thought unless we access a past thought, unless we physically remember what we have in our brains. And the fact that we crave disturbance. So as you say, the fact that we want to, they, they want to travel those distances in prehistory and make connections but you see in history the whole time different cultures looking back to their pasts. So the Greeks, the Romans, you talk about Chinese society at the time of Confucius. For them, the past really mattered. However innovative they were being, they thought that they were stronger. Not, not if they lived in the past, but if they realised that you have to live with it. I mean, that's the, the, the big difference between cyclical and linear uh, modes of history and historical thought. We in the West tend to be quite linear, and that's why we see the past as this dry rusk. It is past. It's not going to come back and haunt us, however wrong that is. Uh, whereas in China, very much, uh, traditionally, it has a, had a sense of a cyclical nature of history. Everything comes back around. And that's why history within China, ancient Chinese society was always seen as an absolutely necessary tool to prepare the rulers of the next generation for government. So in the 11th century, when Sima Guang was asked to write a history of, of China for that period, its official title is comprehensive mirror to aid in government. <laughs> oh, oh, wouldn't it be lovely in the West, in the UK, if someone employed a historian to write a history with that kind of title? Um, absolutely, this was seen as, as the way to prepare rulers. And we have had that in the West. Uh, Sir Walter Raleigh, in the 17th century, when he was imprisoned in the Tower of London, he spent the first three years concocting sort of small medical and explosive experiments in an outhouse at the back of the Tower of London. How he was allowed to do that, I don't know. But then in in the next part of his time there, he wrote a history of the world, mm. a history of the world that was intended absolutely to be an aid to the king and the future king um, at a time at which the world's boundaries were being fundamentally exploded. This was the era when Antarctica and Australia were appearing on maps for the first time, at a time when people needed to think big, historians stepped up and gave them the bigger context. And we're in another moment of that right now, I think. And it's a constant, I think, if you look at the story of humanity and if you go right back to the birth of the modern mind, so whenever we put that sort of 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 years ago, what we do as a species, we seem to try to understand ourselves by the stories 
that we tell about ourselves. So back at that time, even though humans are capable of making the most beautiful, exquisite replica versions of nature, we choose not to do that. We choose to create a man with a lion's head or a fat, fecund woman who's sort of melted away into a skeleton behind. So we are these storytelling creatures. I was really interested to learn from your book, when do you think we start to tell a narrative of East and West as two distinct entities? I mean, I think it's a really interesting idea. And, and normally, the first thought that comes into our minds if you think East and West is sort of civilization and barbarianism. It's very much that Greek dichotomy that people like Herodotus and others put in. You know, the Persians, ooh, bad. Uh, go watch 300. You know, kind of there's a mincing, enormous <laughs> Xerxes, bad. You know, kind of heroic Leonidas, Gerard Butler, good. You know, kind of sort of thing. Um, but actually, when you start to look at the ways that historians, both of the West and the East, thought about and talked about the other side of the world, what you get is an enormous sense of respect. So if, in the West, if we put ourselves in the 4th century BCE, that's Alexander the Great conquering East to the, to the shores of the River Indus in India. And very soon after him, you've got official ambassadors like Megasthenes, one of my great heroes, um, being sent by the Seleucid ruler to be the official ambassador at the Indian court of Chandragupta Maurya. And his account, his Indica, his story of India, is one in which his respect for the Indian system is, is absolutely paramount. He's saying, my God, these guys don't have crime. They don't have slaves. How do they do it? You know, kind of, we can learn from them. It's, I was surprised by reading in your book, though, that the first time that the historical sources describe one another, is, it's relatively late. It's 140, around 140 BCE, isn't it? That's right, that you have the same event being described, as far as we know, in both Eastern and Western sources. Yeah, I mean, particularly between the Roman Empire and China, there's, there's a long way to go, and it ain't a very easy route uh, on foot or indeed by sea. Um, and so you get these gradual coming together and, and sort of explorers from both sides pushing further and further. But actually, in terms of uh, direct contact between Rome and China, we only have one possible source that's even later than that. It's 166 AD mm. in the era of Marcus Aurelius when, again, in the Eastern sources, apparently some Roman ambassadors turned up in what is modern-day Vietnam with exchange offerings, gifts for the Chinese ruler from the Roman Empire. And these were uh, rhinoceros horn, um, tortoiseshell, and something else. But, but rather sadly, the, uh, the Eastern accounts say that these did failed to impress the Chinese. They were not rare or expensive and were thought to be rather rubbish. Um, and as a result, I mean, who knows what could have happened with the relationship between East and West if they brought gold and precious jewels, you know. Um, so they were sort of sent packing. Um, but but the, the moment that I love that I think is an absolutely crucial one is not the direct meeting of people from East and West, but when the historians start telling about talking about the same event. And that, as you say, is in the 140s BCE and comes at the end of a tumultuous period that's, that's the sort of second central part of this book. Um, in the West, you've had uh, the wars of Rome against Carthage. Hannibal's been crossing the Alps, culminating by the end of the 3rd century BCE, the beginning of the 2nd century BCE, with Rome really emerging as the dominant force in the Mediterranean. It's, it's beginning its journey to turning the Mediterranean into Mare Nostrum, our lake. Right? Um, 
simultaneously in the East, actually, by 221 BC, so again, the end of the 3rd century BCE, you've had the emergence for the first time of a unified China under the rule of Qin Shi Huangdi, the first emperor of Qin, who, just as an aside, um, in the later histories, a great story is told about him, that he banned anyone else uh, by himself from using the personal pronoun I, which I think is genius. <laughs> what a guy. What a, what a, yeah. Of all the things he could go yeah. for, only I am going to say I. You know, kind of, um, but he had created a unified empire. Now, those uh, two empires, with a bit of a, a break between the Qin and, and the Han dynasty, um, would basically govern the western and eastern ends of this spectrum for the next, you know, next couple of centuries. And between the two of them, they would rule practically half of the world's population. So at this moment, at the end of the 3rd century BC, you've got the establishment of these two great poles of power. And then over the next 60 years, a single lifetime, you have the results of the, of the establishment of those two great poles of power ricocheting outwards like sort of ripples and upon to meet in Central Asia. And they meet in a place called Graecobactria, which is one of the sort of great um, state establishments. This is a, a very rich place that uh, covers part of what is modern-day Afghanistan, um, and particularly the settlement of Iconum and Bactra. These were incredibly rich cities teeming with trade. They were described wonderfully by Arnold Toynbee as, as a roundabout in which people come to from all points of the compass and shoot out again to all points of the compass. And in the 140s BCE, in uh, Graecobactria, indeed the city of Iconum, you suddenly get uh, a, an arriving wave of nomads. Now, these nomads have come all the way from the east, and they've been disturbed and forced to migrate west by the establishment of the Qin Empire. And they crash into the western world's most eastern extreme, Graecobactria, in the 140s BC, and they take over the city of Iconum. And that is the first moment that we know of that is recorded in both the histories of the West and the histories of the East. Um, it is, if you like, the meeting of history, somewhere in the middle. And I think there's something absolutely wonderful about that, um, that, that this is the moment when, when the seeds of connectivity that will eventually become the Silk Roads are first uh, laid down. I mean, you identify three themes, and that it falls into one of those, of uh, high politics, warfare, religious state control, as being three motivations, in a way, both for development in the East and West, and then encouraging and catalyzing connection between them. Why did you choose those? Do you think those are actually the key players in history, or was it just convenient to, to have those three to kind of hang your stories onto? I mean, Ancient Worlds, I, I see very much as the precursor to Peter Frankopan's Silk Road. So, so Peter's book is looking at when those era, those arteries of connectivity are laid down and present and, and active. But you ancient didn't do worlds, it in collaboration with Peter. No, no, you didn't no, no. even ancient sit worlds, around a table and decide. No, no, but Ancient Worlds is, is how does that connectivity start to come about? And, and in telling that story across such a vast spectrum from Mediterranean to China, um, you obviously have to pick your, your focus moments. Uh, and for me, I was looking for kind of interesting windows into that story of, of gathering connectivity. And, and as a result, these three moments came about. The first, politics, is at the end of the 6th century BC, and it struck me as extraordinary that in almost the same year, 508 
BCE. We've got the invention of democracy in Athens. We've got the foundation of the Roman Republic. But we've also got Confucius, actually at the height of his power, developing his theories about how the world you know, should be governed, how the ruler should rule. And it seems struck me that, that something had happened in, across that vast geographical span at that point to bring societies to a level of complexity at which they were forced to ask themselves, how do we do this better? Mm. How do we actually rule better? Now, they, they all come out with different answers because of cultural backgrounds. Um, but it's very much part of what, going back to Carl Jaspers, he claimed as an axial age, mm. a, a really key moment in, in the big human story. Um, and what you know, is undeniable is that in coming up with those new solutions, be, be it democracy, be it uh, Roman Republican government, be it Confucius, although he wasn't initially very successful, those societies did what in the past had not been possible. They survived. And is that, can I just ask, do you think there's a common theme across those... those uh, in fact, there are three societies, so is Confucius in China, Socrates et al. in Athens, and the Buddha um, in Nepal, modern-day Nepal and North India. Is there something that's encouraging that change? Because, as you say, there are both philosophical and political radical ideas that come to stick together society. And lots of people have different theories. So is it the emergence of cities... So people are suddenly having to rub along together and learn how to live with one another. Is it the fact that suddenly ordinary people are economic actors? So you get merchants with physically with coins in their pockets for the first time. So it isn't just that you're part of a dynasty of priests or you know, kings. It means that you have some kind of weight in society. Or is it the fact that, as you said there's been stasis before. So there's been terrible chaos. There's a real churn. I mean, you know, it's a dreadful time, in mm. fact, mm. the 6th century BC. You have these appalling, uh, basically men behaving really appallingly. Um, <laughs> and we know that Confucius grew up with a terrible, almost sort of total war and watching men's ears being mm. cut off and their hands and then blood smeared on drums and the army would drum themselves into cities with the blood of their, of their enemies. So which do you think? Do you th- is it cities? Is it money? Or is it chaos that catalyzes people to have these big, bold ideas about themselves? I think it's a mix of all three. Mm. I don't think you can, you can claim one of those as being solely responsible. But I would add another, um, which is sheer, random, historical happenstance. Mm. Uh, you know, what's fascinating when you look at the stories about the invention of democracy or Republican government in Rome or indeed of Confucius is that there is always some kind of trigger which, frankly, has very little to do with the invention of this great big political idea. Um, And I quite like that about history. I think too often we can look at the past and see it, it's too assured, it's too, well, this thing happened and it led to that thing. And, you know, you can find yourself sitting in our very confused modern times where nothing feels assured and think, oh, God, we really are rubbish compared to in the past. Everyone seemed to know what to do back then. Um, And actually, when you understand those stories in in some more detail, you realise that they are um, often byproducts of completely uh, random behaviour or random arguments. Um, Democracy as a word, for instance, in ancient Greece, wasn't invented for 50 or 60 years after the democratic revolution. They didn't sort of wake up and go, aha, democracy, you know, kind of moving on. Um, They were actually struggling to to get through particular situations and almost one can say by accident, Mm. democracy was the byproduct in ancient Greece. It's a brilliant book, (coughs) uh, ladies and gentlemen, by the way, you should all buy it and read it um, after this evening. 
And it's new in many ways in the connections that it makes. Just to play devil's advocate for a moment, where are all the women slash any women? Because uh, this is a story of great men and their great deeds as recorded by male historians primarily. So obviously we're in an era when male rulers occupy an, an, a lot of the headlines. But I would push back and say there are no women in this story. In fact, actually, well, there are lots of different women playing lots of different roles. On the one hand, uh, in the Roman birth of the Roman Republic, it is Lucretia, the woman, and her noble behaviour and way of do, uh, doing rape. things. Well, no, it's the way she responds to that. By committing suicide. By committing suicide. <laughs> <laughs> as the only honourable and dignified way to behave that is actually the touch paper yes. for the Roman people to then move on. I know. And, I, and I, do the, you're not buying it. Okay. I'm not buying how it. About, how, about, how about if we move to the east then and we, we talk about Gao Ho, so yes. the wife of Gaudi, the first Han emperor. Now, when he dies, she basically assumes control. She's the empress dowager. Look, she's in control of China from uh, until about the 180s uh, BC. Now, she is so phenomenal as a ruler uh, that uh, even the leader of the nomadic Chongnu tribe, Mo Du, who is ferocious, he's the guy who makes um, drinking goblets out of the skulls of his enemies. Mm. Uh, he proposes marriage to the Empress Dowager, and she sort of, sort of does a very political bit of, uh, nimble bit of political uh, footwork to refuse him and push him away. But she is an absolutely central character. Mm. And then if you move into the 4th century AD, uh, we have the extraordinary story, I think, of Miao Yin, a Buddhist nun. Now, you don't really expect perhaps a Buddhist nun to be playing a central role in Chinese politics, but she was. She runs this uh, nunnery. She has so many people coming to see her to try and get a few minutes of her time that every morning there were a 100 carriages drawn up outside her nunnery waiting for an audience because she had such influence uh, amongst all the key political leaders and, in fact, played a major role in some of the political coups of the period. So you're absolutely right that on the one hand, this is an era in which male rulers take hog to perhaps too much of the headlines, but in which uh, I would argue there are still crucial roles and important uh, moments when women actually hold the reins of power. And it's a very treacherous um, swamp, the, the land of the counterfactual. But if we'll just engage in it for a moment, if, if the, the percentage had been reversed, so you were talking about just the kind of couple of interesting men amongst a sea of women at this time, do you think your divisions of high politics, warfare and state control of religion, do you think those would have been different had there been more equity in the human experience? A society still has to work out how to govern itself. So I can't really see politics, which at its basis is, is ta politica in Greek. It's the affairs of the polis, the affairs of the city, city. not being an issue of interest. Mm. Uh, warfare, I think we see some pretty brutal female war leaders in the ancient world as we do male ones. I don't think it's a, 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 a particularly male thing. And religion, in terms of interest with the divine, again, an absolute constant of the human experience and the human imagination. Um, so, no, I would expect those topics to be just as prevalent across such a broad history as this. Interesting. Very interesting. So, um, one of the things that, that, that this book raises is these big, big men and a few big women doing their thing. Uh, 
you'd think that it's them that's impacting on society, but what is clear from your book, when you look at stories like Hannibal coming back to Carthage and the fact that Hannibal's come back means that the Carthaginians rally, just, just the, the rumour that he's landed. And I think this is particularly relevant to our rather agitated, agitating uh, couple of weeks that we've had in politics. What role do you think that word of mouth, gossip, slander sometimes actually has as a driver of history? So it's not just what men and sometimes women do. It's what people say about what they do. I think, again, an absolutely innate part of the human condition, whether it be uh, Roman politicians playing the, the gossip mill. So one of the early consuls of Rome after the foundation of the Republic um, who managed to gander the sort of nickname a people's friend uh, intentionally burnt down his own house uh, and sort of so that he didn't look like he was having a plush house and allowed the rumour mill to do everything else for him to maintain his favour. Um, to uh, rulers like Antiochus III of the Seleucids who, when faced with rebellion in pretty much every part of his empire running from the eastern Mediterranean shores to Central Asia, realised he couldn't win every battle but that the propaganda value of turning up in all his pomp and ceremony against the smallest of these internal enemies uh, and winning against them would be enough to start a chain reaction that changed people's minds again. Um, this is a world, obviously, without Twitter or Facebook, <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> um, or internet or newspapers or TV, but one that is just as interested mm. in what people are saying about what people are doing mm. um, and what the rumours are and how those rumours spread across often incredibly wide distances. Mm. Uh, whether it's the Buddhist ruler of Sri Lanka who hears on the grapevine uh, the late 4th century AD that the Chinese ruler in southern China, Xiaowu, has officially recognised Buddhism as a, as, a, as a religion to be venerated and worshipped and sends him immediately a gift which sadly takes 10 years to get to him so he's dead by the time <laughs> it arrives. But, you know, kind of, uh, the, these, it is on the basis of those rumours that people made their big gambits and their big decisions. And the speed at which they travel is extraordinary because it can take a day it can take half a day sometimes for news to travel thousands of miles so it sort of says something very interesting about us wanting to share ideas I think and archaeologists will often say we make these connectivity um, routes and we, allow, we build roads physically so that we can transport things mm. but I wonder if it's actually so that we can transport ideas I wonder if that's really what motivates us to connect I think the two are completely interrelated I mean once the trade routes start humming between China all, all the way to Rome, instantaneously, uh, it's, it's the roots of ideas as well. Um, and what's fascinating, I think, in the third part of this book, we look at the spread of Buddhism into China. And it is coming into China from multiple different routes as people are travelling backwards and forwards. Um, Chinese going looking for Buddhist texts as well as Buddhists from Central Asia heading into China. That creates its own problems. I mean, one of the problems for um, early Buddhism in China is that there were so many different people arriving, uh, offering so many different versions of Buddhism uh, through its so many different texts that could be translated, which couldn't be translated properly because no one person sp spoke both Pali or Sanskrit and Chinese, so it had to go through a sort of middle-way interpreter, that you end up with this 
smorgasbord of Buddhist belief that actually took centuries to kind of work out and clarify. So it brings with it its own problems, um, the fact that ideas spread as much as objects do so quickly. But it's that fundamental energy, I think, that, that created such an interesting and connected ancient world and at the same time laid the framework for the way our world exists today. Mm. Mm. I wonder if there's a, there's a very beautiful um, word idea, which in Proto-Indo-European is gosti, so it's G-H-O-S-T-I, and that you'll know it as xenia, so it comes down to, mm. into Greek as xenia, which is an almost... Un- are there many classicists in the house? So, you know, you'll know, xenia is very hard to translate. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, you know, guest-host friendship, uh, you know, stranger-friend relation. Uh, but gosti, originally... Uh, gives us the words guest and host and ghost. And it almost seems to be this kind of unwritten etiquette of civilization that what we have to do is that we have to welcome the unknown, the strange, across our threshold, physically so that we get new, new things, so that there's mm. new blood in the community, but also so that new ideas tra- can transfer. And that seems to me what actually underpins your book, that notion that we are compelled to connect, even if there are tribes warring and if politics tell us we should stay apart, there is something that just demands that we experience the new. So although we think of xenia as uh, giving us the word xenophobic, actually mm. xenophilia is a more constant of the human experience. I think it's, it's one of those key ideas that ancient history can remind us of, mm. which we should bring to the table in our consideration of how we act today in the 21st century globalised world. We are uh, at a moment when, if anything, in, in lots of different ways, borders are hardening between worlds, between ideas, between religions. And I think we need to be reminded that actually for a large part of our ancient past, those borders and uh, didn't really exist, that actually, if there was a border, that the thing to do was cross it. Mm. And where is that space, do you think, in the 21st century? So in Athens, you have the Agora, in Rome, the Forum, in China, the streets of Luoyang. Where is, is it spaces like this? Is it a forum like this? Is it on the internet? How do we meet best to understand one another? I think, well, I think this is a pretty good start, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's pretty good start. Uh, I think we should all be very pleased with ourselves <laughs> here tonight, as you said, uh, when we first started. But obviously, Twitter and Facebook and the internet are the huge um, kind of uh, game changers, if you like, of the 20th and 21st century um, that may allow us, if, if used and curated properly, to have those spaces for thought and, and debate. Um, whether direct referendums are the way we want to go in the future mm. uh, is another question. Um, but I think they that we need to have more of these spaces. You know, too many people we hear of today are disengaged in politics. They don't see how it relates to them. One of the fundamentals of the ancient world, I think, whether you were in Rome, Greece, Central Asia or China, is that you understood that what got decided for your community had a direct impact on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, whether that was deciding to go to war and you pick up your spear and you go and fight, or whether it changed the way in which you traded and worked, or, or indeed in which you thought, um, there was a sense that what happened at the community level affected the individual. And I think too many people we have lost that sense of mm. connection uh, today. And anything that helps us re-engage people, that gets people uh, talking and discussing again, um, must be a good thing. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I mean, it's face-to-face contact obviously helps that sense of community. And there's a very interesting, you'll probably all know this, that if you look at the results of digital democracy, if we sit at home and cast our vote on the computer, we make much more selfish decisions than if we go into the ballot box and do it or we meet to talk about it. And that is something we've obviously got to deal with as historians and the policymakers absolutely have to deal with, is how you have a robust exchange of ideas and one that helps us to actually think about the other rather than about ourselves when we're meeting across East and West. I think a robust uh, conversation and discussion is a hallmark of the ancient world. Uh, It could sometimes turn bloody. Mm. Um, It could spill out of the discussion space into the war space, uh, but it was a fundamental of how they went about doing things. I mean, I'm always reminded of, uh, in ancient Greek society, the word for a private citizen, for somebody who did not engage in that public debate, was idiotes. Mm. It's our word for idiot. It's great. Kind of the, um, (laughs) fundamentally, if you didn't do this, you were a muppet. Uh, Mm, You know, mm. so, uh, and and I think that you know, uh, moves across again those ancient societies, whether they have the same kind of idea of equality as there was in Greek democracy or whether you're in Confucian China. Actually, it's about engaging uh, 
actively as being the fundamental uh, of what your job as, as a citizen in a community really is. And I, you've made a, a real clarion call for all this being taught in schools so that kids learn about that little Buddhist nun and they hear about ancient Greece in you know, as much depth as they do about Buddhist India. I'm completely with you. Dear Michael Gove sort of tried to do it, but as a mother of teenage girls, having gone through the school system, what do you get rid of to allow a global history to be taught? So the, the OECD runs something called PISA, the Programme for International Student Assessment. And its job is to look across 80 countries and look at how 15-year-olds are being prepared for the challenges ahead. Um, And in 2018, which is the next time they're going to be doing their sort of assessment point, for the first time ever, they will be asking countries, how do you prepare your 15-year-olds to be globally competent? Mm. And I think that is a fundamental sea change, that they, they want to know kind of how we are thinking about education to prepare people to have conversations with others, often conversations with others who believe and think very differently, and to be aware of and intercultural in their knowledge. So I think we are going to have to find space for this in the way that we teach, and absolutely fundamentally we need to find space for this in the way that we teach. Mm. I've just got one question. So it's 400 pages, this book. Easy read, you know, don't worry, the 400 pages shouldn't put you off. Is there anything that you were really cross that you had to miss out? Was there a bit of research that just the editor said, oh, you know, it's a step too far? Uh, No, I mean, the one thing that that, that doesn't make its way into the book are the sort of... um, hazy stories about about trade missions between Rome and China. Um, so that, that meeting that we alluded to supposedly in 166 AD when uh, supposedly sent by the Emperor Marcus Aurelius these random Romans turn up in Vietnam with gifts of rhinoceros and tortoiseshell and go, here you are uh, Chinese emperor and they go, well what a load of rubbish. Um, that, you know, there, are, there are some very fun and juicy stories like that which actually... Um, whether they happened or not, and there's some big question marks over whether they did or who sent them or where they turned up from uh, or what might have happened as a result. Um, sadly, there wasn't, there wasn't enough space for that. Maybe if we'd done a section on trade as well. We could Why have. do you think, because we've talked about the, the globalised world that we live in, so there's a reason to write a book like this now, but I think it's very interesting that both you and Peter Frankopan have brought them out when you have. Why do you think, as academics, you are confident enough to put the S at the end of worlds and silk roads? I would, I would say that the, the, the crucial thing for us to realise right now is that um, we have an appetite for a bigger perspective. That didn't begin uh, any time recently. In fact, actually, it began with World War I and World War II, that, that emerging out of those global conflicts, people sought for a way to avoid future global conflict and thought quite reasonably that understanding more about the wider perspective and the bigger picture might be a way to go. And so building out of that since the beginning of the 20th century has been this momentum for a global perspective um, that we hopefully, with these books, are now contributing to. The crucial thing for me is that actually this is not a new thing. Mm. We mentioned Walter Raleigh a little while ago that when he, at the beginning of the 17th century, was writing his history of the world, there was another appetite for the big picture. That was crushed in the 18th and 19th centuries by the rise of the nation-state. Suddenly, history was repurposed to strengthen these much smaller silos, political silos, um, and we lost interest in the global and went back to the local. 
actually that wasn't the first iteration of it either. Because if you go back to the ancient past, when you get into the second and first centuries BCE, as we've been discussing, there is this waking up to a much wider world. And you get in the West people writing universal histories that try and encompass the full world scope and equally in the East. So we are not in a a new moment. We are in another cycle of history, as I would have it, that that we alternate as humans, as part of our human story, between wanting the bigger perspective and wanting a more local perspective. We're right now, for a whole host of reasons, wanting a global perspective. The question mark for me is that twice before, this has come crashing down back to the local. Mm. What might actually happen to encourage us back to the local again this time. Yeah, so to use history as a tool rather than as an an alibi for something which is a smaller-minded approach to the world. We've been talking a bit about Socrates. Uh, Socratic dialogue, as you know, involves debate and involving everyone. So we thought we might now open it to you, ladies and gentlemen in the floor. Um, I'm going to take questions in twos and threes, and I would just remind you... Uh, My favourite maxim, I'm sure you all know this, when you say, I'm sorry I wrote a long letter, I didn't have time to write a short one. So when you ask questions, we know that you are brilliant and extraordinary, but can you prove your brilliance with the brevity of your questions? That would be enormously helpful. Um, Who would like to ask a question? There are microphones coming round. There's a gentleman in the front there in a check shirt. Is there anybody else who'd like to put their hands up? Yes, another gentleman there in a grey suit and a gentleman there. We'll we'll do them in three. Are you all right? Do you want me to take notes? Are you all right to remember? So, uh, uh, middle... Chap. Oh, you didn't get a microphone. There we are. It's fine. You can, yes, do start. Well, just linked to the last comment that you were making uh, about globalization and coming crashing down twice in the history. So, would Trump and Putin and potential Brexit uh, cause that to happen again? Uh... We're keeping them as threes, right? We are. So, the. My question. Um, There was a perception for a long time that China had effectively closed its borders to the outside world. I mean, for hundreds of years, I guess, was very much a perception in the 18th and 19th century. Mm. What you've been saying seems to contradict that in many ways. How much truth do you think there is to it? And who's got the third microphone now? Yeah. I just wondered whether your research on China gave you any clue as to how the relationship between East and West will pan out from today. Okay, three small issues. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. To be dealing with, yeah, okay. Um, if we start in reverse order, so uh, with, with historical temporal order, um, actually, I think the 18th and 19th centuries are, are a fascinating period for the change in our perception, particularly in the West, of, of where we look to. Voltaire, if you take Voltaire, for instance, absolute huge fan of China, uh, an emblematic of a Europe who actually thought China was the highest cultural product and and, and a lot of what they were producing was extraordinary. That, as China was uh, materially invaded and trade taken over by a number of Western powers, was completely misplaced uh, or or displaced, rather. So that you then uh, had this the rise of the idea of, of China as the antithesis of everything that was good in the West. And simultaneously, you had the retaking up of ancient Greece as a great thing. Um, actually, ancient Greece had been, and particularly democracy, had been poo-pooed for centuries. It was all the Romans' fault. The Romans had turned democracy into sort of mob rule and nothing better. 
when you look at the sort of uh, the the papers surrounding the discussions in America and the formulation of their constitution, they're like, don't do Athens, don't do democracy, don't whatever. If every Athenian citizen had been a Socrates, mm. um, Athens would still have been a mob. Right? It was kind of their phrase. Mm-hmm. And yet, with the Greek War of Independence beginning of the 19th century, you have suddenly have this rehabilitation of the Greek example and the ancient democratic example as being what Europe should follow. So you have this sort of almost simultaneous ditching of China and, and finding of an internal European ancestral thing which we could claim as being a cultural high for us to aim for. Um, we move forward slightly in time to, uh, to today to, to Putin, Trump, Brexit, <laughs> Uh, and all the other things that really make us want to stay at home with our heads under the duvets uh, uh, and avoid the world. I I mean, I think that the key thing here is that uh, The Guardian described the Brexit vote as uh, a rejection of globalisation. That's rubbish. We can't check out of globalisation. Whether we are part of the EU or not, Right? We can't leave the globalised 21st century world. Um, our, our goal has to be to find uh, the place that we want to occupy within it um, and negotiate around the inevitable presence of figures like Putin or Trump or indeed some of the characters that we've been discussing in the ancient world. Um, in terms of where we will go next, I mean, I think it's absolutely fascinating that China has put huge emphasis now on the recreation of a modern Silk Road. Right? We are, they are breathing life back into the Silk Road um, as trading routes. Now, some people are arguing that this is as part of a larger geopolitical ploy to stuff Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, this may well be the case. But, but it is fascinating that as another cycle, <laughs> we're going back to where we were, um, perhaps, in, the, in our ancient past. Three more. A gentleman at the back with glasses, gentleman in the middle with a dark jacket with glasses, and gentleman in blue. And I am going to come to you, don't worry, as well. You, you have to go to a fixed microphone, so we'll go up to the balcony for the next lot. So, yeah. Um, you, your research seems to have been mostly focused on China as far as uh, the East is concerned. I'm wondering about India mm-hmm. and, you know, whether you, that's also in your book, um, if you could speak a little bit about that. And gentlemen at the back, with, yeah, game with glasses. We just get the microphone over, just directly behind you there, yeah. You, you asked um, whether if we'd had uh, female leaders in the ancient world, we would have had less war. Mm. In Britain, we could have two female leaders of the English government, complete leadership of the Scottish government, it's female, and we have Plaid and not so much in Northern Ireland. Do you think they'll prevent war? Well, if I take those two questions together, I mean, I think absolutely India plays a, a central part in the book. We haven't brought it up. And I think actually India is a, is a fascinating meeting point of these cyclical and linear narratives of history that we're talking about over here. Um, it's often the complaint often made about India, ancient India, is that it doesn't have a historical narrative like Herodotus in the West or Sumatiana in the East. It doesn't do history. Um, and indeed, if you look at some of the kind of early historical works thinking about India, that's almost used as an excuse, a reason for the fact that India had to be subsumed into the British Empire. We need to give them sort of, you know, the proper way of doing history, uh, ridiculous as it sounds. Um, but actually, when you look at India, one of the fascinating things about ancient Indian culture is that it has so many different ways of doing history. So there is the cyclical narrative, obviously, you know, particularly uh, Buddhist-inspired. There is the linear narrative of uh, writings on, on particularly pillars and, ro- and uh, large kind of monolithic rock structures that are put up. So you get something like the Allahabad uh, 
pillar that Ashoka, one of the Mauryans, writes on about what he's doing in his rule. And then you get one of the Guptas coming back uh, centuries later to add to that and sort of position themselves in the linear narrative. And then you get late Indian rulers coming on uh, and offering it at the same time. And India sits as the locus for so many of these cultures also in terms of trade. Uh, Something like 50 million sesterci a year was heading out of the Roman budget um, to India. Uh, You can't walk on the west coast of India for for tripping over a Roman coin. Um, Actually, this is a a world and a culture that... uh, bore the brunt but also saw the opportunity and was able to harness a lot of the opportunities of so many of these currents that were going east to west um, all the way through. Um, It also has my sort of absolute favourite example, um, perhaps to bring in the gentleman's question as well, uh, of, of a kind of uh, man and woman doing, working together for a stronger rule. So the Guptas in the 4th century AD um, reinitiated something called the Ashamveda, the horse sacrifice, uh, which had been disbanded since Ashoka had, had converted to Buddhism. Uh, and this involved the parading of a horse around the countryside, um, its ritual slaughter, and then while the king and, and, and his uh, sort of uh, retinue danced around it, fanning their their clothes and sort of murmuring what we think of obscene words at this horse. The queer, the king's wife, lay down and pretended to ritually copulate with this horse. Um, and the whole point of this ceremony was to symbolise the union between the human ruler and the divine uh, gods. So uh, you know, it, it all kind of comes together in this rather extraordinary festival, all at the same time. To the gods, there's you've got to go to the microphone. Got there in the end. Uh, World War One, you mentioned. Um, for me, the difference between East and West is epitomised by the Berlin to Baghdad Railway in 1913. Now, in the West, we're not taught about it. In the East, they are. And World War One was basically a row between nine of Queen Victoria's grandchildren in positions of power in Europe, and the Germans expanded their interest into the Middle East, a railway from Berlin to Baghdad and the Iraq. So they were then the other way, and it all met in Syria. So. Really, we are taught history is written by the winners, and history is cycle. It repeats itself every forty or sixty years. So, um, I'm just throwing that into the equation with World War One. Very good, World War One. Can you just yeah, line up next to the microphone. Don't be shy. And lovely. Oh, a lady. Lovely. <laughs> Hello. Um, I was. You spoke a lot about how you have the East and West, and somehow the ideas met in the middle. I was actually wondering if you could turn that um, around and comment on whether or not the ideas meeting in the middle is what enable these civilizations to exist. I mean, perhaps volume two will talk about the ancient world of Australia. I'd really like to read that. Perhaps not. Mm. Great. And last question. Following on from the point earlier about how we experience the other and in light of recent events where perhaps real life isn't curated but it's often a collision, I was wondering what your take might be on Samuel P. Huntington's thesis of we're destined for a clash of civilizations. Okay. Uh, World War One. I. I mean, I think, yes, absolutely, the starting point for, for a bigger global perspective, H.G. Wells, better known as the father of science fiction, was the first man to sort of, he, he wrote a series of newspaper articles in the 1920s that then got published as a book called The Outline of, of History, um, in which he argued for the need for, for a global perspective. And I think one of the things you've pointed out is, is, is the ruts that we've got into in the way that we teach particular topics um, that don't tend to take account of, of the bigger geopolitical 
landscape. Um, we would move it to, to clash of civilizations, or rather to, to ideas meeting in the middle, but what about if they then bounce back out again? And absolutely, they do. Um, they bounce back out again. Um, or, indeed, they make a journey all the way across. So one of the fascinating things about uh, images of the Buddha is that you know, there are no images of the Buddha until sort of Greek sculpture, in particular sculptures of Apollo, start turning up uh, in, in Buddhist lands in Central Asia, and suddenly Buddhism is forced to sort of react to this um, and create an image of their uh, key figure as well. And it's no surprise that those first images of the Buddha end up, uh, is the Buddha dressed in a Greek or Roman toga and sort of Greek or Roman hairstyle, etc. And then when those images continue east and those statues continue east again, they sort of go through a transformation um, as they head east. So I think uh, we've got ideas coming from both sides, but also absolutely moving all the way across and also originating in the centre and moving outwards again. It's a, a real kind of frenetic um, sense of energy and creativity. Uh, and then we had the clash of civilizations. Are we inevitably kind of heading towards that moment? Uh, no, I don't think we are. Um, you know, fundamentally, if, if the ancient story that's in this book tells us anything, it's actually about, uh, yes, there's war. Inevitably, there's war. Inevitably, there are clashes between cultures. But actually, there's a much bigger and more interesting story to tell of connectivity between cultures, and whether that's through trade, whether that's through the movement of peoples and ideas. Um, that story is there. Uh, and if you know, the global historical perspective, this moment that we're in right now in the 21st century of thinking globally is going to prepare us for anything. It's going to prepare us to meet a number of the challenges of the 21st century that are fundamentally ones that cross borders, uh, whether that is migration, disease, trade, climate change. These are all things which, frankly, the clash of civilizations is not really going to help us much with. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gentleman behind, you see with a beard, yeah. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, your point about how the East and the West, they perceived one another at certain key moments. And um, in a lot of the discussion on empire in the 18th and 19th century, it's this element of Orientalism or a discussion of self and otherizing or even um, sense of superiority versus uh, inferiority. So in, with regard to this era, which is quite different but also very global, how did, was there an element of admiration or fear or potential um, inferiority or superiority coming, uh, coming to heat? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think fundamentally the interesting point is that when they first make those contacts, when we hear about them in the literary sources, particularly between China and Rome, for instance, it is actually one of admiration. Uh, you know, <laughs> I can't get away from that. That quote in the Huan Shu where you know, they're saying, oh, these people are tall and very honest, just like us. Hmm, yes. Um, in mutual recognition and admiration. Um, I think uh, you know, there is a huge amount of that. Uh, obviously, there are also clashes of cultures. That idea of self and other does exist, the defining yourself by what you are not. Uh, it's a particularly Mediterranean thing, in a way, a particularly Greek thing, in a way. Um, but also uh, defining yourself by the larger geopolitical landscape. So one of the areas we also talk about in the book is Armenia in the 4th century AD, another place coming to Christianity that is accepting Christianity as a new religion, but which is stuck with a very difficult geopolitical power play as, as its society is both looking to Rome and to the Sassanid Empire to the east, and so is stuck with, with this cultural mishmash that it can't really sort out or align and it ends up falling foul of that of that geopolitical landscape because the Romans and the Sassanids eventually make a pact and they just split Armenia right down the middle and it gets lost uh, between the two. Yeah, hand up at the front here, right at the back. 
you see a lady in a leather jacket right at the back and a yeah, gentleman, tall gentleman in the middle. Yes. Okay, so I just want to ask you, like, in Asian words, it seems like Chinese culture was much more on the equal footing or maybe even superior than the other cultures. Even that it had many inv invaders, they all converted to Chinese culture, especially Han. But nowadays, it looks like our society is much more vulnerable, has less confidence in our own cultures, and we seem to be influenced by by other cultures very easily, be it Korean or American. So I wonder what has changed, and do you see it going back to the Asian days? Interesting. Yeah. Just picking up on your point earlier about the clash of civilizations, a lot of the stories we hear and tell about civilizations meeting are quite negative at the moment, and in fact going back to empire and those kinds of times. Can you suggest some new stories from the past that might be more inspirational <laughs> to people? Very good. Is there an answer? I was going to ask you that. Is there an answer to it all? Wow, okay, yes. <laughs> Is there an answer to it all? That's a question. Um, uh, start off at the beginning here. Y yes, I mean, I think, I think fundamentally, though, we can't... Uh, we can be misled by the way history seems to be so assured uh, about itself and about the characters and, and moments that it's looking at. Uh, I mean, when we look at ancient China, I, I don't necessarily see a place that is um, so assured about itself in comparison to today. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the era of Confucius is that he is but one of a hundred schools of thought. So the era is known of you know lots of different people suggesting ways in which society can get itself out of the, the, the horrific warring tumult that it, that, that it's in. Um, it is. A, a set of historical happenstance, really, that Confucius turns out to be the dominant one, and he's not uh, the first in any mean, shape, or form. Sorry, just hmm. to clarify, these swords are all internal, so they, it doesn't seem like we are borrowing swords from outside world, which is different from today. So that's what I'm, what I'm asking. Yeah, I, okay, sorry. So, yes, very much Confucius is, is seeing himself as looking back to ancient Chinese precedent. You know, he is not an innovator, he is a communicator of the ancient path. Um, in terms of uh, looking to the new, though, I mean, I think you only have to turn to, to the advent of Buddhism and the arrival of Buddhism in, in China in the 4th century AD to see the example of something very new entering the Chinese bloodstream in all sorts of different directions and different ways. And actually, despite the fact that China in that period is, is politically ripped apart at the seams... Um, Buddhism finding a place both in the north and in southern China as answering particular yearnings and questions um, that, that the Chinese were, were considering at that point in time. One of them is particularly to do with sort of nirvana, the afterlife, what happens next, those big questions that weren't fundamentally being answered by anything that there was in, in Confucius or Taoist philosophy at the time. The question over here, it was sort of, are there inspirational stories from, kind of, what is the answer? What news do you find in history that gives us hope? Uh, some inspirational <laughs> stories from the ancient past. Um, perhaps, I mean, take again in, in the 4th century AD when we see some of those uh, Buddhist missionaries setting out on the very difficult journeys to China um, and taking with them their learning and facing this enormous challenge uh, of translation and of getting the Chinese to understand uh, and think about and then hopefully take on board and even, dare I say, believe in their ideas. Um, I find those stories incredibly inspirational. It's, not a, it's people who have dedicated their lives um, to uh, an often renowned 
renouncing their social roles. So a lot of cushion princes uh, renounced their roles and rights to govern and set off as, as lowly missionaries across uh, the world to the east. And when they got to China, you go through this incredibly difficult process of, of translation and uh, often of having to respond to critics. There are lots of uh, early Buddhist writings in the fourth century in China where they're sort of responding to every criticism that's made of Buddhism and advancing uh, uh, their own views in response. I think those are incredibly stimulating and inspiring stories of, uh, even against adversity, the communication of ideas across very, very different cultures. Yep. Alan, you were talking about the the exchange of cultural ideas, but um, when cultures meet and these beneficial exchanges happen, isn't it typically caused ultimately either by um, pursuit of power or by pursuit of trade? You know, these are happy byproducts of, of rather more temporal things. Yeah, I think there are relatively few people, in, particularly in the ancient past or in any part of history, that are selflessly, without any kind of self-interest, um, go back to those Buddhist missionaries that, that are heading towards uh, the East. They're doing it fundamentally because they are driven um, to spread the word of their beliefs. Uh, obviously, trade, obviously, power grabs are, are almost inevitably part of the story. Um, and again, I think... Uh, this is a Socratic dialogue and, and sort of we're at our best when we're, we're being compassionate. We're also at our best when we're being honest about what we look like in front of the mirror. Um, mm. I think, you know, the idea that, that Sima, uh, Sima Guang's 11th century history in China was called the comprehensive mirror to aid in government mm. is, is crucially that idea that history holds up a mirror to us all uh, and which we have to look at ourselves and we might not like always what we see but it's crucial that we don't shirk from looking at that image. And there's this beautiful Greek word, agon, which means contest or competition. We sort of think, or we understand that, gives us our word, agony. If you look at it in its earliest iteration in Homer, what it actually means is a place to meet and then becomes a competition. So as you say, there is this interesting idea that as soon as we meet together, we're destined to be in some kind of conflict. Great. Can you see where I'm pointing? Perfect. So, yes, if you could just be quick... On the assumption that we can't predict the future, how do you think historians might write about the run-up to the Brexit? (laughs) How will we judge Brexit? This might be the last answer of the evening. Well, I hope very much not, as The Guardian sort of uh, claimed it, a rejection of globalisation. I think think it speaks very much to what what we were touching on earlier, that there is... While on the one hand now we feel uh, in this uh, global moment, a global, globalised moment, our globalised world, we are also struggling with the reality of what that looks like and about what our place is within it. And you can see that not just in Brexit, you could see that and link that perhaps to the sort of uh, the, the approaching tearing apart of America that's going to happen in the next presidential election. Um, you can see that in a number of European Union countries that are considering and thinking about their future and how it stands. You can see that as Russia and China play off against one another to sort of position themselves as global trade players um, for the next million to come. I think as ever, uh, 